This week's Pasha is uh, Pasha Truma. Pasha Truma, as stated in the, uh, in the verse, Daber el Bnei Yisrael, God tells Moses to tell the uh, Israelites, Be'yichuli Truma, and they shall take unto me a Truma, an offering. Me'ekol ish libo, However, only from those that their hearts truly uh, feel that they would like to participate in the building of the tabernacle, tiku etrumati, and it repeats it twice. Shall you take? Shall they take unto me a an offering? What is what is uh, quite obvious? That before we begin to even understand the uh, the implications of this week's parsha, we're referring to this entire section, to the building of the tabernacle, the clothing, uh, all of the utensils, and how the uh, ark was built, etc. This, this parasha became obsolete with the building of the Holy Temple. There was no longer a need for the uh, tabernacle because the tabernacle was a uh, construct in which the Jews carried along with them throughout their journey in, in the wilderness until they came to Israel, conquered the land, etc., and then built the Holy Temple. For us today, this parasha seems to have no relevance because there was no longer a need many thousands of years ago for the purpose of this uh, tabernacle. That's, that's the first question we want to raise. And the second question, it says that they should gather gold, silver, copper, and many other materials and fabrics And they should make unto me a migdash, a holy place, Mishkanti Betocham. And so I will rest amongst them. And everyone asks that if, if there was a requirement of building a temple at a later date or the tabernacle during the time of their uh, sojourn in the wilderness, then why should why should it say Vishakanti Bitocham and I will dwell amongst them, which is in the plural, when he's saying I shall you should build unto me a house and I will dwell in the house. Or not why does he need why does he need the house? He can just as well dwell amongst the Jews without the house. <coughs> to answer these two uh, questions first question of which of course is not uh, I haven't found uh, to be raised anywhere the second the second idea about making a temple or a tabernacle that the Lord could dwell I mean and without a tabernacle is in his presence 
throughout the world, as it says, below Chalhar, it's Kivodo. The entire land is filled with his presence. So what would be the purpose of, of a uh, temple? To understand, to understand this, uh, this entire Pasha, we would have to go to a Zohar, incredible Zohar, to understand, to understand this Pasha. I read from Pasha Bayetse, page 81, Peal, and the Sif, the paragraph is Kuf Pei Chet, 188. This is the, uh, this is the subject relating to that we had discussed on many other occasions when Yaakov was desirous of marrying Rachel and uh, Lavan switched switched uh, Rachel and and uh, gave uh, his older daughter Leah in place of Rachel uh, to be uh, Yaakov's wife and the Zohar has a complete discourse on the night that he did marry Rachel, his his mind was, I'm sorry, the night that he married Leah, his mind was with Rachel because he had agreed with his father-in-law, future father-in-law, that he was working these years only for the purpose of marrying Rachel, not Leah. And then he switched Leah in place of uh, Rachel. And then the Zohar goes on to this idea about the fact that when when Reuven, the firstborn of Yaakov, uh, appeared, firstborn, and he was obviously the Bechor, he should be the Bechor because he was the firstborn, and we see in other sections of uh, the Torah, more specifically, the uh, last section of the Torah in Deuteronomy, in which it states concerning the blessing of the tribe of Joseph, that that there Joseph was designated as the firstborn. How, how could Joseph be designated the firstborn when in effect he was the eleventh child? Not the first child, not the se- not even the second, but he, was, he, he came chronologically into existence. He was born after ten other children, and yet this is Joseph was considered the firstborn. And, and the Zohar struggles with this, uh, idea. And it comes to the conclusion, briefly, uh, that since the consciousness of Yaakov at the time of marrying Leah, whom he thought was in fact Rachel, the fact that he thought that he was marrying Rachel this consciousness, and subsequently, the intercourse that he actually, that he had with Leah. The consciousness, with the ejaculation of the sperm that gave birth to Reuben. This sperm actually gave birth to the physical firstborn called Reuben. But because his consciousness was directed to 
uh, Rachel, this consciousness would remain in animated suspension. It would remain because consciousness is one of those spiritual entities that in Hedebaruchani, we say in Kabbalah, that means anything of a, of a spiritual nature never disappears. Once it became manifested, although it may not have become manifested even in the direction that it was meant to be taken, because his thought, while it manifested in relationships with Leah, and furthermore, a son known as Reuven was born, but the power of the consciousness of Yaakov that he thought he was marrying Rachel, that consciousness, like, like a cup, although consciousness is something of a metaphysical nature, it's, it's not something you can touch. A thought, a thought is not something you can package. And yet, says the Zohar in his answer, along with the Ari, and this is not even the, the point that I want to make, but this is, this is remarkable by and within itself, that this thought, this thought, would not disappear. And therefore, since this was the, the firstborn thought of Yaakov, because he had no other children before this, that this would become ultimately, ultimately, after ten children, become mass- manifested then with a physical relationship with Rachel, and there would appear Joseph, and that Joseph would be the firstborn. Incredible. You know, we can package tea or water in a cup, and, and, and we can leave this cup here maybe for a thousand years, or, or years, or several years. We understand that we can preserve something of a physical nature. It lasts. While it does not last forever, everything undergoes the the uh, the uh, laws of what is known in physics as Maxwell's the, uh, second law of thermodynamics. I don't know why we need the law, but the law, his law said that everything ultimately goes through a uh, entropy, which means it must ultimately disappear and die. Well, I guess he, he, he must have been such a bright man that he saw people dying. He observed graves. He, he observed, uh, uh, sanitation dumps where ultimately things are discarded. So he came to this brilliant conclusion that everything ultimately decays and dies. But they last for a while. But the fact that consciousness, which did not even become manifest, I could say consciousness here becomes manifest if my thought is to raise this and I, and to, and to lower it. We say consciousness directs this physical action, but there's a, there's a immediate connection between the thought and, and an observable connection and this instrument. And so this consciousness travels through the arm and, and, uh, and ultimately becomes manifest as a physical, as a physical, uh, uh, material entity. But here we're talking of, of Yaakov thinking. This was Rachel. Having, having that consciousness undergo a physical relationship with Leah, and yet the consciousness remained removed from the relationship that he had that evening, that evening, with Leah. Incredible.
But yet this is the way the Zohar answers that contradiction as to who's the firstborn, Reuben or Joseph. Now the Zohar takes this same idea. This is the, this is the very lengthy uh, discussion that, that the Zohar has on what, what, I, what I've just described to you as the question of Reuben and Joseph. Then towards the end of this section, the Zohar continues, Thought, arousal in one's mind, avid uvda. This is what makes physical reality. When the Zohar wrote this 2,000 years ago, science today, only in the 20th century, is struggling with this concept. That what? That everything we observe here, everything, the table, everyone sees the table here, everyone sees me here, that which you observe is not because I am a physical person or this table is something physical and therefore everyone observes the table as being a reality known as a table? No, says the Zohar. And in fact, supported today by science, but, but they're going crazy because they don't understand how something of a physical reality is subject to the fact of whether I acknowledge the fact of this table, that it exists. In other words, if I decide the table does not exist, and I truly believe that I've made the table disappear, that I, even though I'm staring at the table, I say it's an illusion. Like we, I've always discussed the idea, we, I don't know if we have one here, of the two, of the, uh, of the person, two people looking at, looking at each other, a profile of two people, and you see in the middle, if you, if you forget to realize there are two faces, you then see a goblet. You see then a coast, a goblet. You can't see both at the same time. You either see two faces staring at each other. I don't know, is everybody following the idea that, I, the essential idea? Okay. So you either have two people facing each other, or when you lose, when your eyes lose, contact with the two faces, suddenly there appears a goblet. A goblet. And when my, well, I don't know what it is, whether it's my consciousness, is it my eyes that are deceiving me, but suddenly if I, for whatever reason, the goblet disappears, then what I see is two faces. Now there is an obvious example, and science uses that example, as as a physically directed, physically directed manifest, manifestation. Directed by what? By whom? By the eyes only? By the eyes only? No safe signs. Everything around us, including something which is more than a picture, more than just a picture, but referring to a table, a chair, anything of a physical nature comes about because the direction of the mind created, created. So down. Right. I don't, can everyone see this? This is the uh, illustration of the two faces and the goblet. 
See, you can see two faces looking at each other, the black. And then suddenly your eyes wander and you observe a goblet, the white, the white section of this, uh, of this picture. How does it happen? We call this an optical illusion. But what does that tell us? Now we have a word, optical illusion, where we're saying it's an illusion. In other words, the two faces are there and they're not there. The goblet is there and it's not there. How do we relate to it? How do we answer where did the goblet go and where did the two faces go? How do we, how do we rationalize? How do we materialize this kind of an idea? And the answer is, we don't know. And so we answer this phenomena by stating it's a optical illusion. You mean to say that my, my eye does not observe the two faces? Are you telling me that my eye does not observe the goblet? What is the definition of being an optical illusion? Say science in reference to this example. This here becomes a little difficult. The chair becomes a little difficult. Now, if I turn around and I don't notice the table, the same principle would apply. The table does not exist if I do not observe it. Because the observation, the observation is what determines the existence. This is 20th century physics. The Zohar makes it even clearer. Whereas physicists are saying, if I'm not looking at the table, it's not there. But in the back of his mind, the back of his mind, he's saying, did the table really disappear? And when I turn back to the table, what happens? Oh, there's the table. Does that mean I created? Does that mean I created the table at that moment? Physicists have a, a difficulty with that. So now I refer back to this Zohar in Pasha Vayetzi, who has no, who has no qualms about defining physical reality and thought consciousness, where he says, Hirur, arousal in the mind, Vahamakshaba, and the thought consciousness of the mind, Ose Maseh, without question, without, without raising a doubt, as to how this is possible, that because I consciously believe that something is there, or, not even if I believe it, but my consciousness says, many a time, looking at somebody, uh, did anybody see Yaakov? And there's Yaakov standing right in front of me, and I say, anybody see Yaakov? And he says, he's standing right in front of you. Says the Zohar, Yaakov does not exist until, until my thought says there he is. Because thought establishes, thought establishes the physical reality. Maseh, the action, the world of activity, the world of action, the Olamasiya. Nothing more than the fact that I say it does, it does exist, or I say it does not exist. Implications from this Zohar are, are, are awesome. Does that mean anything that I have in my mind? I mean, if someone says, I want to have a billion dollars, a billion, not a million, a billion dollars on the table, 
the fact that he decides that in his consciousness he wants the physical reality to become an, an entity, according to the Zohar, yes. According to science, yes. But how is it possible? Uh, I, I, t- I say the joke about Einstein, who had uh, who had left his home to go teach the same principle, because this is based on Einsteinian uh, physics. That when he went to teach and he wanted, he came home, and suddenly he recalled that he had left the key inside, and this was uh, this was an automatic. Uh, locked door, and uh, so when he left the home, the door closed, and they asked Einstein, I said, what's your problem? He says, I can't get into my home. Why? Because I left the key inside. Well, I said, you just got through teaching us that if your consciousness decides the door is not there because only consciousness determines the physical reality, determines physical reality, this is very difficult, but we'll hear it once, we'll hear it twice, and then you suddenly begin in your own mind, as I have done, because I, it's gone through my mind more than once. But those of you who hear it maybe this, this morning for the first time will find some difficulty with it. But the difficulty is not in, in the reality of, of whether consciousness creates consciousness. Mind you, not a machine. Not, not, some some factory that advertises we make tables. It is not they who made this table. Their consciousness that they decided there was a table, and I go in to purchase that table, it is I that is required to establish the reality of the table. For for those here of you hearing this for the first time, it's like this the same thought that goes through the, the minds of the physicists. How could that be possible? That my mind will construct a building. My mind will construct a table, etc. But this, the Zohar says, said some 2,000 years ago, without questioning whether it's possible or not. The Zohar says very clearly, Makshava ose ma'aseh. The thought, the thought makes physical expression. The thought creates a material entity. No question. There is nothing in this world, says the Zohar, except thought. When you, when you are desirous to create, to have a table in your, in your home, you create the table. But we all, we all accustomed to going out to a furniture store to buy a table. Can I sit home? Sit home. I don't even have a chair, but I decide I want, I want to sit on a chair and now I have a chair. Do any of us understand that? At, at, without, without deeply considering the thought of the Zohar. But, Needless to say, this is the revelation of, of, of a Zohar 2,000 years ago, which only today in the 20th century are physicists also claiming the same reality, except 
having the same difficulty that you and I, I don't have the difficulty. Because I've been mulling over it now for a long time. Because I know that I didn't realize, although I've looked at this Zohar some 32 years, but I never understood what the Zohar meant to say. Well, we have ways of interpreting that. And there have been interpretations. Well, when you think of going somewhere, if you didn't think of going there, it would never happen. But that's the negative approach. That's not saying that that the mind created the automobile that will take me there, or the train or the plane. But science says, and I repeat it again, and I know I have repeated, and you, many of you may have heard this stated before, that if I'm traveling from New York to California and I intend to be on the beach in Santa Monica, on the sand, that when I decided yesterday that I would leave the following day and be on the beach that day, when I arrive and I begin to take my walk and stroll along the beaches of Santa Monica, I am walking, says the scientist, I am walking in the footsteps, I am walking in the footsteps of my conscious thought of yesterday. So this is not, we have the Zohar, we have physicists who support this same idea. It is only left, it is only left for the masses like ourselves, we don't even have to understand it because, first of all, I can tell you no scientist understands it. He knows this is true with all of the physical theories, etc., that have evolved over the, over the, uh, and it's only theory, only in the mind. But in the mind, they know this is true. They can express it. To understand it, they do not understand it as yet. As yet, they do not understand it. And you want to know why they don't understand it? Because the people don't understand it yet. When the people will begin to understand, when I say understand, I don't mean to say that you didn't understand when I said that I will be walking in my footsteps of yesterday that was created yesterday by the mere thought that I wanted to take that stroll tomorrow on the beach. And you hear it for the first time, you say don't understand it, but ultimately just as this theory took 2,000 years to ultimately evolve and how did it evolve? As a theory, it didn't evolve now every scientist understands it, every scientist even believes it, he knows it's a fact, whether he believes or does not believe it doesn't alter the idea that this is a fact and so they do not stretch it further by saying that consciousness, consciousness created, consciousness created the physical reality. But not only the footsteps, because does it require that I come the next day walk there? Yes. Then you'll all see the footstep. What about, what about the footstep before I, I arrive in California? Is the footstep there? Yes. Well, could you see the footstep? And the answer is no. No. Well, if you can't see it, if you can't see it, it means it's not there. But you remember what you just saw? Remember this illustration? You saw the two faces. One moment later, do you see the two faces? No, you see the goblet. What happened with the two faces as you observe the goblet? What happened to the two faces? Where is it? I don't see it. I don't see it, but it was there before your very eyes. 
And you admit, and we all will admit when we look at that, at that figure, we all admit, true, when I see the goblet, I do not see the two faces. When I see the two faces, I do not see it or observe the goblet. Where did it go to? And how does it return? So, I, as I said, they had two words that they applied to this idea. Optical illusion. Does that answer where the two faces ran? Where the goblet disappeared to? When one or the other makes its appearance? So while this may be difficult for us to understand, may be difficult right now, but just as scientific theory has evolved, Scientific theory has evolved and is difficult for our limited minds only because our minds, our minds have not been adjusted, have not been trained, have not been programmed to begin to, to examine, explore this, this kind of an idea. But that's what the Zohar said 2,000 years ago. And since some of us may question the Zohar, or I don't believe anyone here questions the Zohar, but if you were to tell this to your friends, and you would say, this is what the Zohar says, you would be laughed. You would be laughed out of the room. You would be ridiculed for making the statement that consciousness establishes the physical reality. Then you would say, but you know, physicists also say that it is correct in theory, in practice, where is it? In practice, how do I, how do I adjust to the idea that this table, this table that came from some factory is only a table until I recognized it as a table in my own home. The manufacturer recognized it in his factory. For me, not having purchased that table as yet, the table does not exist, like the two faces and the goblet. For him it exists. Some of us may look at the goblet. Some of us may look at the two faces. If I ask one, one person, what do you see? I see two faces. I ask the other person, what do you see? I see a goblet. Now he sees, he sees, the one on the right, sees something that the other one does not see. But how could they both be looking at the same picture? And one says, I say, I see the two faces. And one says, I see the goblet. They're both looking at a physical reality. This must sink into us. Because this is undeniable. That one will see the two faces. One will see the, the goblet. It is undeniable. And therefore, the words of the Zohar in our day in our day, while it may be difficult for us at the very beginning to accept, not that we do not accept it. The Zohar is holy. Zohar HaKadosh. Rabbi Shimon is enough for me to accept it. I accept it. So many other things he said which are so true. I accept this principle too. But what our difficulty is, is not, is not, in the fact of whether we do or we do not accept it, our rational mind is so limited, so limited that I could have someone standing in front of me and I would ask others, have you seen Yaakov? 
there he is standing right in front of you. Why are you, why are you looking for Yaakov? Don't you see him in front of you? And yet, no, I did not see him, but others did. Same principle as this figure of the two faces and the, and the goblet. And the sooner we begin, the sooner, I mean, I'm referring to every person individually. The sooner we begin to not a question of accepting because someone said so, but the sooner that this thing can filter into our limited rational consciousness, the sooner that we can understand its, its operation. Only then can one say, I have control over my destiny. Only then, until such time, as I said the other night uh, on Rosh Chodesh, I said, I want to make it very clear to all of us, and only a fool assumes that we have control over our lives. Yes, we're busy, we're doing this and we're doing that, and, and we're even convincing ourselves that we have control. But if one wants to look honestly, honestly, at, at the daily activities that we're involved with, only a fool can assume only a fool can assume and, and some of us may be sitting here and still saying Give me if I don't want to go to work today I won't go if I do want to go to work I, I mean I'm not in control I control yes we think we control but there is no question none of us or most of us cannot say to, to illness leave not today come back tomorrow or if there's financial difficulty, the accountant walks in and says, you're broke, you've got no money. And you tell the accountant, no, sorry. You come back next week with that report. Today, that report doesn't exist. The accountant think you went crazy. I mean, you asked me to report, to, to draw up the figures of, of, of your business. And it says, you have no money, no equity, nothing. And you tell the accountant, you don't know what you're talking about. Come back next week. Think it over and you'll see how you're wrong. Very few of us can make that kind of a statement. It is only because we have no control. And therefore, the only way we can control this physical environment is that we become firmly entrenched in the idea that my mind says there's money in the business. Well, there isn't any money in the business. That creates the money in the business, or does that create the money in the business? My mind says, the doctor said, oh, I've taken so many tests, and Cosmo Shalom, oh, oh, you're in bad shape. <laughs> Wait a second. What did you examine, my dear physician? My body? And what did you find? This problem and that problem and the other problem. Don't you know those problems do not exist? Because my consciousness already has taken care of the matter. Even a physicist who's not, even a doctor who's not a physicist won't understand what you're talking about. But this is not 20th century physics. This is the Zohar's physics of 2,000 years ago. And if you're questioning, yeah, but so I want two million, two billion dollars now on the table. If my mind, as the Zohar says, creates the physical reality, then why isn't it on the table? That's your problem. But that does not, that does not 
bring us to the conclusion that it's not there. Do you know why it's not there? Just to give you a simple answer. Do you know why it's not there? Although physicists say it's there, just like they say that when you thought to be on the Santa Monica beach yesterday, you are, those footsteps have already been created. A fact. Neither any of us here can say, oh, come on. That's stupid. It's a fact. And let us first, let us first drum into this limited mind. And until we recognize how limited it is, the idea that there is no money on the table when you said, I need a billion dollars, and the mind says, it's on the table. Where is it? Do you know why it's not there? For only one reason. None of us believe that the mind can do and create as the Zohar says, as the physicist says today, to create by my mind footsteps on the beach. It's, it's too raw yet. But the more that we repeat this idea, the more it'll begin to sink and suddenly a curtain will be lifted. How come I didn't see it before? No different than if Yaakov is standing in front of me and I say, where is Yaakov? And suddenly someone says, there he is, right in front of you. Oh, there you are. Suddenly I see him. He wasn't there for me a moment ago. This idea, this kind of thinking will firstly create control. I mean, if that's what we can do, God forbid someone's got a cancerous tumor. He says, look, you're a physical reality. Go away. Go away. You don't exist. That's control. Is that a control that we can achieve? The Zohar says, that is reality. Then why don't we observe it? Because we do not accept the principle that it is possible. We do not understand the principle that it is possible. And with this incredible Zohar, we now can begin to understand when it says, and we raise two questions here. Make for me a, a uh, tabernacle, a holy place, like the holy temple or the tabernacle, and I will dwell in it. And I will dwell in it. And we raise two questions. Number one, what do we do? We package God, and now we put him into a, a holy temple. He says, that's where, and that's where I dwell amongst the Jews. I mean, isn't God all around? That was the obvious question. God's all around. What do you mean he's instructing us to make for him a tabernacle? And the answer is, that when you will make a tabernacle, meaning what? Your mind, your mind is going to establish that I have become materialized. Not in the sense of real material, but that I become, in your mind, a God that is in this tabernacle, I will be there. If you do not 
If you do not build that temple, well, God's all around. God is all around. And how many of us, before we want to do something of a negative consequence, not talking only about stealing, not talking only about murder, and that the fear of the Lord being all around us will prevent and will be a deterrent for murder. Is that true? Of course not. The idea that in, 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 uh, in Isaiah, it is stated, as we say in the Kedushah, Melo Chalaris Kivodo, since the Jew received the Torah on Mount Sinai, he still doesn't believe in the Melo Chalaris Kivodo. He may repeat it, he may state it, he may pray with it every single day, as God, the land is filled with his presence. But is it a deterrent for us? The answer is no. Do you know why it's not a deterrent? Why aren't people afraid before they pick up a gun? Or, as we say, there's another avenue that we can ruin some people. There's some, some who you shoot and you finish it. And then there are others through Lashon Hara that he, he can get nowhere anymore, as if he's dead. Both accomplish the same objective. Both accomplish the same objective. Is the fact that God is all around us, and he's telling us, make us a tabernacle. Make us a tabernacle. And so we'll have God amongst us. What does that mean? And now what? And without the tabernacle... And without the tabernacle, God's presence is not there. This was the very serious question we raised. Some some commentators raised that same question. Are we trying to create a limited God, a limited concept of God, that now we can fit him into this, into this tabernacle, where he's all around the world? And now I'm, I'm putting him into a tabernacle doesn't make any sense even the holy temple doesn't make any sense that God now will become a presence felt how but according to the Zohar we just quoted you can begin to understand the, the depth and this is where the Zohar gets it this is where the Zohar gets it the depth that as we explain my mind for something to have not only a physical presence but you know you feel sometimes people's presence even though physically they may not there because we've come to the realization again about when the Zohar says concerning concerning Joseph and, and Reuben his consciousness was for, for Rachel and Rachel would have the first son of hers would be Joseph so even though that came many years later but that consciousness was there that consciousness was there it doesn't disappear because this is the only way the only way that the madness of civilization since Cain and Abel since Cain and Abel 
It is the only way that man, that mankind will stop, will stop creating the madness around ourselves, whether it would be with, a, with an armed machine gun, whether it would be with our mouths, whatever. But the world, the whole world, including the Jewish world, lives in all of this fragmentation, lives almost, almost in a hopeless, in a hopeless feeling of things are not going my way. Maybe today, yes, like the picture, the two faces, it's here now, tomorrow, the following day, a problem seems to be a, sol- a problem that I can't resolve, that I can't solve. We all go through these things each and every single day or every week, every two weeks. We have no control. We shall never, never achieve control until we begin to implant within our mind the idea that only through consciousness are things Someone thinks evil, he has created a physical, a physical world around him of negativity. It's there. Where is it? What do you mean? It's only consciousness. He's only thinking of hurting somebody. He began to hurt that person already. Already. The fact that he is thought that way. And therefore, when it says, God says, build me a tabernacle, build me a holy temple. And I will dwell amongst you because you will never understand that I exist until there will be a Bet HaMikdash. There'll be a Kotel. You see the Jews will go down to the Kotel? Go down to the Kotel, right? Cry, weep, pray, put some notes into the wall. What are they doing? They are saying, here's God. You know what they're saying? Here's God. Anywhere else? No. That's why the minute he can leave the Kotel, he can go back to his old ways of hurting people, thinking negatively, etc. But even at the wall, what happened? That he feels, and, and doesn't it say that at the wall, God's presence, the Shekinah, is felt there? Do you know why? Only because that Jew putting that little that little note, that little prayer into the crevice of the wall has decided in his mind, God is here. No other reason. That's the implication. So it's not that God suddenly is packaged into this little compartment from being Malochalar's Kivodo and now he's being packaged. Not being, not the idea of being packaged, being reduced in size, that now God can fit into the little building. But rather, the, we materialize the presence of God. We begin to physically experience Him. Emotionally. I feel it. I feel it. Something like, like I smell it. I relate the two. That, that's the implication of the, of the, of the verse. 
And therefore, when the, when the verse begins by saying, in the beginning, Rabbi Shimon begins this way. It says, And they shall take unto me Truma, meaning an offering. An offering. Of course, we have, we, we know that, or we have heard from past, from past lectures, that Truma comes from the word Tarum Hay, to raise the Hay, to raise the consciousness of Malchut. Today's explanation stretches that idea. Like this we learn, tarum hey, meaning the world of desire to receive for the self alone. These kind of negative consciousness that exists in the world of action, in our world, tarum, we ought to raise it. Raise our consciousness. What do you mean raise our consciousness? Instead of thinking only of yourself, be like Zerampin. Zerampin considers others. That's God. God can think outside of himself. A human being instinctively does not think outside of himself. He thinks what his desires are, what his necessities require, and therefore, and therefore, he needs food, he goes by his food, he needs clothing, whatever his needs are, generally, these are the, these necessities, these needs, is what governs action. Why does someone go to work? Why does someone have a business? Because he needs money to purchase the necessities of life. So almost everything around us is governed by that singular idea, me. Along comes the Torah, says, and we say, raise, raise, raise that hay. Okay, but... We're here for the sake of this verse here, while that is very noble, we should raise our consciousness, that's what it means by raising our consciousness, raise our, our thoughts over and above the usual, the usual concentration of thought, which always surrounds the one basic essential thought, which is my needs, the necessities, that I require. That is, that is what we mean when we say, raise your consciousness. Raise it. Truma, from the word truma. What do you mean, raise it? Raise it to where? How do you raise your consciousness? Well, that's the way Rabbi Ashlag explains it in the Talmud Esesvirot, that we invert, transform. By there, by transforming not the needs only of ourselves, but now to consider the needs of others, which is not instinctively our thought, which is not the first thought that most human people experience, feel, as I have to take care of others. Why should I want to take care of others? Why? What, where, where does the need come for taking care of us? Why should I share? We say in Kabbalah, we learn, you must share. Why should I share? Well, so you'll hear in the classes, don't you see in the bulb before the light can go on, you've got to have a plus, you've got to have a minus. This is the way the natural laws of the universe operate. 
You want to follow the rules and principles of the universe? You want to follow those, those rules that create for you a, a life filled with light? And light includes everything, all of the, all of the, of the, of the fulfillment that can provide a, a fulfillment for my necessities, my needs, my individual needs. This is the only way. Well, I have no choice, then I must share. I must share, because it's the only way I shall experience fulfillment. Okay, that's what we learn in Kabbalah. Try to compare it to the bulb. Okay, we expect, accept the principle. This is the way it's done. You can't go against the natural laws and principles of the universe. But why should I share? Other than, well, this is the only way. This is the way we've been learning. And this is a, certainly a good start for our, for our journey to raising our consciousness. But do we achieve an elevated state of consciousness by saying, well, I have no other choice. I have no other choice but to share. And that's what this Pasha seems to be about. We call it Pasha Truma, meaning to raise, raise our consciousness. To raise our consciousness to one of sharing. To one of sharing. To one of sharing. Why? The same ideas as Zohar says. Because when you raise, when you raise your, your consciousness, in effect, what should follow is going beyond the physical needs. Why? Because the physical needs, as for 2,000 years or for 3,400 years since the Torah was given, we have been preoccupied with how we can achieve or receive the necessities of life. And now we're coming to the realization, what's the matter with you? Just say in your mind, you've got it. You don't have to work for that. That's yours. What do you mean? I never thought about it. I never thought that when I say, uh, I want tea on the table, it's going to be waiting for me because I decided it's going to be there. Never thought about that. Well, once you, once you, it begins to happen. Wow, you mean the Rav? Rav is not going to ask for tea anymore in the morning. And he's just going to say, huh? I think I want a glass of tea, and there will be the tea on the table. That will really be a miracle. Huh? I do do that. How come we don't see it, you might ask. So why don't we see the cup of tea? We see someone brought you the cup of tea, but we didn't see if the tea, a cup of tea wasn't brought to you that you would experience it. Well, how many times do we experience the taste of things that are not in front of us? Has it ever happened in our lives? Have you ever expressed it? You know, I can, I can taste it. I can taste even before, even before I experience what I'm to eat or to drink. So, while you may not observe the cup, who says I need a cup to capture the water? Well, is there another way? <laughs> because you haven't thought of another way. How could, how could this incredible story, and that's why we dismiss the stories of the Torah. They're beautiful stories. Do we believe it? God is here in the synagogue. Do we believe it? Only for those 
only for those who have come to the realization that thought consciousness can materialize, I don't mean in a physical way, but can make things happen, is what the Zohar says. God to be here, I decide he's here. When I build this tabernacle, the purpose was because he's here. That's raising your consciousness. That's making your consciousness understand that what you have, what you can do, what you can deliver is beyond what we are told we can deliver. That if I don't have a, a, a factory to make tables or closets, then I have no factories and I have no closets. Maybe I'm putting somebody out of business today because I'm telling them I don't need that place. I'll make my own closet. I'll make my own table. Can you imagine everybody does that? What, what are those poor people who make closets and uh, tables? What are they going to do for a living? That would be the first question. But I would then say, what do you need closets? And what do you need tables for to make a living? Say, I want money on the table to go buy, to go buy groceries. I mean, why, why do you want to, you, you mean you just want to make closets and tables? Is this your life's ambition? Of course not. I'm not in this business for the fun of, of making closets and tables. In fact, I don't even like it. I'd rather be doing something else, but what can I do? I gotta make a living. Only because we have been we have been programmed into a certain way of thinking. We have to, if we can change that way of thinking, everything around us is going to change. So on this section of Yichli Truma, says Rabbi Shimon, It's a unique Hebrew word. You speak to uh, somebody, uh, listen, I asked you to do something. You know, why, why don't you, why don't you finish it? He says, Ani mishtadel. In Hebrew, it's such a beautiful word because I really don't even know what it means. You know, I, I'm really trying. Mishtadel. I'm really trying to get it done. What, what do you mean you're really trying? <laughs> so I, I, it took me time to understand that it was really. You know what he's telling you? I didn't decide to do it yet. But he doesn't want to say, I don't want to do it yet. So he makes himself nice, you know. Well, why didn't you get it done? I, you're my employee. I said, get it done. Well, I need Mr. Dale. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get it done. No, he's not. If he tried to get it done, it would have been done. Oh, everybody understands that. You know, that's, that's a thought we can't accept. That's a thought we can't accept. But we do not accept that thought because we're looking for a way out when we don't want to do something. And someone approaches me and says, or the employer approaches the employee and says, well, I told you to get that thing done. I told you to make the table. I told you to make the closet. And you didn't get it done. And the answer is, I need Mr. Dale. The boss looks and says, come on. I don't want that. I don't want no excuses. Oh, you mean it's only an excuse? So does the boss use that too? In case he's told to do something and he really didn't have his consciousness to do it? Because it doesn't involve more than consciousness. That's why things do not get done. Because our consciousness is not there for it to be done, for it to be accomplished. Everything, everything that is ever going to be manifested into action, into physical action, 
must first, must first be created by the mind. And we go, and the Zohar goes one step further and says, nothing more than that. It's there already. Well, so now, now, if the, if this employee is, uh, is a real catalyst, and the boss comes in and says, I told you to make that closet. He doesn't say any more Ani Mishtadel because he didn't get it done. He says, don't you see it? He says, what are you, crazy? Where is it? He says, right there. Boss says, I don't see it. And he, because he's a real capitalist now, this employee, he says to the boss, just because you don't see it, it means it's not there. Oh, what, you got crazy? That would be the normal reaction. But did you say I was crazy when I said, where's Yaakov? And then someone points out, he's standing right in front of you. Did any of you think I was crazy? No, you didn't. He just said, I didn't see it. But he was standing right there in front of me. And what do you answer? I didn't see it. And you don't think it's odd that I say I didn't see it and everyone else sees him. Everyone else sees him, but I said I don't see him. And that's, is that satisfactory? Wasn't satisfactory when I did that? Nobody had any, nobody had any complaints. So why is this employer now having a complaint to his Kabbalist employee who says, there's the closet right in front of me. He said, but I don't see it. Well, you don't see it. That's your problem. He says, but I have an order now to fulfill. Well, if the employer is a Kabbalist also, and the person comes in who ordered and paid already for the closet, he says, where's my closet? He says, it's right there in front of you. The guy says, oh, wait a second. You crazy? It's not there. You took my money. Give me a closet. He says, here it is. Take it home. <laughs> Meanwhile, it's funny. But we will soon begin to realize that when the client also becomes a Kabbalist, he will say, thank you. And walk out with his closet that he doesn't supposedly see. And look at the employer makes money, didn't cost him any material, and he makes a, whole, a full profit, 100%. At least we can begin to try to relate to it. If we don't relate to it, Pasha Truma has 96 verses in it. Has 96 verses in it. Why does it have 96 verses? Because this is one of the Pashiot in which Satan wields his greatest influence. What? We're talking about building an ark for the Lukot, for the tablets. Best movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Look what the, the Ark had created for us. And this is the holiest of holies of all Pashiot. Creating a Bet HaMikdash. What could be more holy? Is there anything more holy than the, than, than the Kotel Maravi, the Wailing Wall? In Judaism today. Ask anybody, what is the holiest? Oh, the holiest I think is that synagogue on Robertson Boulevard. Which one? Well, the, the Kabbalistic synagogue. That one, that's the one I wouldn't even go to, but he will go to the, you know, everyone goes to the Kotel. Nobody has any arguments about saying that's the synagogue I don't go to. You know, you know I'm all alluding, you know I'm alluding to that joke about the guy, you know, who built two synagogues and they asked him, what do you need to? And he says, that's the one I don't go to. Right? 
Nobody would say that about the Kotel. The Kotel, everybody goes to the Kotel, right? The holiest of holies. We all recognize His holiness. All of us. All of us recognize His holiness. What does, what does that holiness share with us? We experience, everybody says it's holy, we all believe it's holy. Torah says it's holy. It says that even though it will be destroyed, the Shekhinah will be there. Shekhinah. Beside those who study Kabbalah. <laughs> ask, ask the same Jew. He tells you the presence of God is, is right here at the wall. <laughs> ask, what are you talking about, the Shekhinah? Well, don't you know? The presence of God is here. He doesn't even know what he's talking about. But everybody agrees to that. You know why everyone agrees to it? Because everyone decided, yes, that's why it became a reality. That's why it became a reality. Where did it become a reality? Only at the wall. Does that mean now, feeling the presence of God, he won't go back and try to destroy his neighbor and try to destroy this person and another person, steal, rob and do whatever because he was at the hotel? Now he feels the presence of God? Of course not. Of course not. You know why? Because he believes it's only there. It's only somewhere in Jerusalem. But God is nowhere else. God is nowhere else. You know why God is nowhere else? Because he doesn't believe God is anywhere else. So what is always telling us here, that whoever wants to be mishtadel b'mitzvah, or mishtadel b'hakadosh baruch, be busy, you know. Mishtadel. I'm trying. I'm trying to get close to God. One must make this attempt only if he understands that this attempt requires, requires truma, requires a contribution. So say, you can't. You can't go into this kind of histadlut with the God. You can't begin to think of, of being close to God, says the Zohar, unless it costs you something. Well, was the Zohar a good schnorrer? I mean, that, that sounds right. You know, imagine, look at the number he's playing on us. He says, you want to get close to God? You just can't walk in and say, here I am. Or you can't just walk to the hotel and now I, I feel God. Zohar says, no. Don't even make an attempt to get close to God empty-handed or for nothing. After all, there is no entrance fee to the, to the, uh, to the plaza of the hotel. Not yet anyway. But there is no entrance fee, right? You go over there. Nobody asks for anything. And the Zohar says, you want to get close to Shekinah? You want to get close to God? Don't even try. Don't even try to get there without it costing. So what do we think it means? What do we think it means? Money. According to his strength. In fact, it doesn't even say, it doesn't even say according to how much money he's got. He says, according to his strength. 
And as all says, we've already discussed this in many places. And, and that the person should accept this attempt to want to get close to God. Seems from the Zohar that not even money, it's, it's the idea of wanting to be close to God. Continues the Zohar. Continues the Zohar. And he asks the question, Agarei Katuv, it says in Isaiah, Lechu shivru v'chlu, Lechu shivru, Baro kesef, Baro mechir, Yayin v'chalav. It says you want to eat, you want to feel spiritual nourishment. It's without, or says the Zohar, Harei shuhu b'chinam. The verse in Isaiah seems to indicate it doesn't, you don't have to pay. You don't have to, you don't have to give physical money to get close to God. Says the Zohar. Says the Zohar. Seems Zohar is confronting with a, with a problem. In one, in one, in one place it seems to indicate doesn't require something of a physical nature. And then he says, here, doesn't it say, Vayichu li truma meikol ish ashe yidvenu libo. And because time is running out, ashe yidvenu libo. What his heart wishes to give. And what's the difference? What's the entrance fee to get close to God? Five dollars, five hundred dollars, five million dollars. What does it cost? From the Torah, it's clear. It's an individual, it's an individual commitment. It has nothing to do with the, the amount of, of an entrance fee arbitrarily established. Nothing to do with it. And from here, the Zohar says, it has nothing to do. And the idea that one must contribute, it would indicate that you can't have things for nothing. Meaning, can you, can you acquire this without paying for it? Says the Zohar. Says the Zohar. B'shum shalom yizkeh b'maseahu klal lamshich unless, unless there is a hishtadlut that ultimately manifests itself in Maseh. In other words, when you want to get close to God, because when you're close to God, what does that mean? Why do you want to be close to God? Why do we even want God to be in the Holy Temple? We're all praying, and that's in our prayers, that one day we will see 
the rededication of the Holy Temple. Why? Because we have fixed in our minds, well, I guess when we have the Holy Temple, God will be closer to us, and therefore, what? Then what? Have we thought about why we want the Holy Temple rebuilt? Most of us have gotten so involved in the Holy Temple being rebuilt that we don't even know why. We're so involved in the activity of building the temple. Here too, it says, I want you to build me a temple. But says the Zohar, it says, I say you venerably bow. I don't want the temple. If I don't have you, as the Zohar says, that's what it means not to acquire it for nothing. You cannot acquire the presence of God. And why do we want the presence of God? What is the presence of God? We are the presence of God already. If it says in Talmud and Zohar that we are all part of God, every person is Chalik Elokai Mimal. We are all part of God. Or do you need the temple? You are already part of God. What is this business of the synagogue? Come pray in the synagogue. Come pray because this is where he dwells. Dwells here, doesn't dwell anywhere else. Because the synagogue can become idol-worshipping. The koto can be idol-worshipping. Remember, I raised the question, why why? How many, how many verses are there in Truma? 96. 96, I didn't say the word, which means Sadiq Vav. It also represents a word. Sav. Sav. Sav says the Zoha commandments. Is Avodah Zarah. What? Why do you have to, why do you keep Shabbat? I was commanded to keep Shabbat. You're an idol worshiper. I'm following the instructions of the Torah. Why don't you steal? Don't steal? Torah says you shouldn't steal. Lotigno. Why don't you murder? Torah says. Lotitzach. That's idol worshiping. Idol worshiping. I'm following, I'm following the instructions of the Torah. And therefore, the expression came about. And yet the Zohar says, Sav means Avodah Zarah. Sav. When you accept the principle, God told me so. God told me so. There's God and he told me. What about the God in you? Does it tell you that you shouldn't steal? No, I would steal. But God tells me not to steal. And God is there and I'm here. Then I'm not part of God. I'm not part of God. And I wouldn't have to say God is telling me I have to do this. And God is telling me through the Torah. That's why the Zohar says. The Zohar Zohar says that the whole Torah could be idol worshipping. Why do I come to the synagogue? Why do I go to the Kotel? That's where God is. Don't you realize? Where else is God? Nowhere except 
in the synagogue. Well, if he's only in the synagogue, and that's this, didn't it say Mishakati Betocham? Now, when you build me the tabernacle, now where will I live? I've got a new address. 1062 Robertson Avenue. What about 1082 Robertson Avenue? No, he's not there. He just moved. But this is the idea in our consciousness. We, this is the effort that, that Rabbi Shimon says. This is what he means. According to your, to your strength. What strength? You mean if my muscles are, are big or small? That's what, no. He says to understand. If you want to be, you're making an attempt to get close to God. It cannot be. Bichinam. What does it mean? Bichinam. Without cost. Without cost. Says, and then it says in another place, it doesn't require any cost. And the Bishimon has a difficulty with it. Which is it? Does it have to cost me? Or does it, doesn't it have to cost me? Avalishtaduta kadosh baruchu aomedit b'maseh. Okay, now you came to the synagogue. Are you taking God with you? Or you're leaving him home? Are you making God become materialized in your life? That means he's walking with you. Because when I came to the synagogue and I captured God, and the reason I come to the synagogue to capture God, could I do it at home? Sure you could. And if I prayed at home, it's not a prayer. We know it is a prayer. Then why the synagogue? Because the Torah knew the Torah understood the same way as it says here, make me a tabernacle that I should dwell in it, it says. No. No. I shall dwell with Shekhanti Betocham. And the Zohar asks, and all of the commentators ask, it says, Rasuli Mikdash, make for me a holy temple, Vishakanti Betocham. It should have said, Betocho. And I will dwell in it. I just asked you to make a holy temple for me. That I will dwell in it. It says, And I will dwell amongst you. Says the Zohar. Because you could keep God in the temple. And leave without him when you go, wherever you go. Have you made an attempt? Sure, I've come to the synagogue. You've already made your attempt. If if that's all you've done, that's empty. That's empty. That's why he says, Reikam Ubichinam. It didn't say you have to pay for it. In fact, he brings the other verse that says it doesn't require, in fact, admission. That's one of the reasons that we will never, we don't even charge admission if we go away, Rosh Hashanah, to a place. What happens if someone doesn't want to be at a hotel? Do we ask him for his ticket? He drives, or he lives next door. He doesn't need the hotel, and he wants to come to the hotel to pray. Do we ask him for a ticket? Never. Not in my day, not in the days of my teacher. I can't remember, Rabbi Ashok, I'm sure, didn't, didn't require a ticket for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur either. Because that's not the way you get close to God, because I paid my dues. When you take God with you, Lemaser, says the Zohar. That's effort. 
That's effort. But why is that effort? Because you're not walking away empty. Bechinam. Rekam, says the Zohar. You walked into the synagogue, here is God. Nowhere else? No. But, but, the idea of making the temple was not that God will have a place, Vishakanti Betocho, that I will rest, I will dwell within it. Only to give you the idea that if your consciousness says that you have brought God and, 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 and I don't want to use the word material, but for you he becomes real. When he becomes real, just like if I have a house and God moves into that house, well, where does God live? He lives there. He lives at the temple. He lives at the, at the hotel. But if your idea is that's where he lives and you don't walk away with him, that's empty. You're walking away empty-handed. Therefore, it says, the idea was not for us to understand through our consciousness that's where God would know. Your idea of God is just as this, this table is in my home, then it's mine. The same idea applies to God. God is with me, then he's my God. But if he's there, if he's at the hotel, and we see from the proof in the pudding that people walk away from the hotel, revert back to what they were before they came to the hotel. They walk away wreck. They walk away without anything. Because they didn't understand that the house that God was, that the house that was built for God was only to provide us in our consciousness that we can establish God through our consciousness, through our hishtadlut, to establish God amongst us. Not there, but amongst us. And how, how would we begin to, how would the Jew begin to understand that God is near us? That that we are part of God. Only, only if this concept of a house, of a betamidash, of a kotel, became a rally. It was only the, our entree. It was only the way we can begin. But the ultimate, says the Zohar, was to walk away with God and not leave God remaining in the temple. Thank you.